from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Jennifer Wold, Senior Editor with Credit Union Magazine. This week's guest is Donna Tona, Vice President of Client Experience at Works, Inc. Donna specializes in emergency trauma management, assisting businesses with incidents of crisis. She also works with organizations to build exercise scenarios in order to train before a crisis happens. I spoke with Donna as Hurricane Harvey was pummeling the coast of Texas. Donna, can you just give me a little bit of your of your background? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, I was very lucky as a kid. I grew up on a farm, a ranch in Alberta, uh, to parents who were grain and cattle producers. So I grew up on a horse and thought I was horribly, horribly disadvantaged because I couldn't ride a bike till I was about 28 years old, and I could only ride a horse. So I was a great, great upbringing and, and loved it. And uh, from there, when I graduated high school, I went to college and took business and uh, come out of college and basically just kind of wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. So ended up uh, driving 18-wheeler for an oil company for five years and hauled dangerous goods for them. And then when the oil patch and the oil uh, cr- crumbled because our province is heavy into oil and gas, we, we, have the, we have the oil sands up here in Alberta, so we're very heavily into natural resources. And when that crashed in the late, late 70s, early 80s, lost my job, so I went back to school and uh, got my police sciences uh, post-secondary in justice administration. And from there, volunteered with the Calgary Police Service in Calgary, Alberta, and got on as a summer student. And then all of a sudden, there was a position opened, and and I stayed there for 10 years as a civilian general manager and had a staff of over 100 volunteers and paid staff, and we looked after victims of crime in the city of Calgary. And when I started, it was uh, we had 10,000 calls a year for service, and at the end of 10 years, we had over 50,000 calls a year for service, and I'm pretty sure 30 years later, they're probably to 80 to 100,000 mark because the city's well over a million people. And we pioneered a lot of very cool things with that unit. We brought the victim impact statement from your country into Canada and started using it for victims of crime. We pioneered new ways of looking after domestic violence and uh, um, just different victim, victim issues. From there, in 93, I started my own company because as a civilian in a police department, you really can't go very far unless you put on a uniform, and I didn't want to do that. So started my own company working with credit unions because we had uh, built a credit union robbery trauma response program that the credit unions in Canada picked up, and after CUNA Mutual also became very interested. Uh, Rich Wolt, who was the risk manager for CUNA Mutual many years ago, was a great supporter. And then when I say my career was accidental... It became accidental because Oklahoma City happened, and CUNA asked me to come down and co-lead a team of insurance professionals, risk management professionals, to put federal employees' credit union back together. And uh, that was, of course, we all know the story of Oklahoma. We also know the amount of courage and the amount of support credit unions gave to Oklahoma City, and uh, our team was responsible for looking after those that had died in that blast, um, helping the human resources team rehire and going to funerals and supporting family and supporting members. And it was probably one of the greatest experiences of our life. We all bonded very, very well after that event and because we didn't know each other. And I'm still 
friends with some of the team today, and I go to the States once a year to connect. Um, that's just the way it is. That was very, very exciting. So that started my disaster management career and uh, kind of put our company on the map over, over it. And then from there, there was 10 other disasters that I was involved in, which was the ice storms in 98 that hit the U.S. and Canada extremely hard in the east, uh, boat sinking with a bunch of school children up in northern Alberta, uh, some uh, uh, issues with municipalities with uh, respect to tainted water. Um, I was uh, working with a U.S. company who invited me down to World Trade Center and worked with uh, with the teams that were on the ground, worked with the uh, counseling teams that were on the ground at that time and helped debrief and look after them. And then fast forward after 2001, our companies branched into building emergency plans and crisis management plans for municipalities and governments and, and uh, businesses, and we haven't looked back since. And it's just been, it's been an incredible 33-year um, career. haven't uh, regretted a second of it. What's considered a crisis? Well, a lot of times we look at crisis by what's happening in the world, and a lot of times we forget the small stuff. So when I talk to uh, teams and staff and conferences and, and training teams about what crisis management is, it's about if you can manage the little stuff and if you can help folks manage the little stuff, they'll be better off in the big stuff. And, for example, a crisis to me could mean somebody hitting my truck because I'm a Chevy girl and I like my truck, but to you it wouldn't matter. Um, maybe you losing your purse, but to me, oh, I don't care. There's nothing in mine anyway but a debit card and whoever has money these days. So it, it depends where you are in your life, and it depends where your life experiences are. But what I do teach folks about crisis management is folks have to be taught, trained, and supported to handle a crisis. You can't run away from it. And, and there's many crises out there. There's family crises, there's death, there's destruction, there's Hurricane Harvey right now, there's all sorts of natural stuff, and we can't run away from it. And what I'm finding in our society right now is that we're running away from things, and we, we tend to talk about trying to make a decision about it, and we don't. And we talk about self-medicating, I'll just drink and it'll go away, I'll just take pills, I'll have anxiety medication. And it all stems from the fact we don't make a decision about handling the crisis at hand. And the longer we spend not making a decision, the worse it becomes in our body and the worse it becomes for our lives. And so that's what I teach people is how to make decisions. So how do you, how do, you do that? Well, there's a really cool thing in counseling that says, here's, here's how you make a decision. Everybody takes their pens out and gets ready. And you look at everybody and you go, you just decide. And they're all looking at you. Like, well, what do you mean? It's got to be way more complicated than that. And it isn't. For example, um, I was talking with a lady a little while ago that had lost her husband. Her husband died. They were married 51 years. And they did everything together. And I said, okay. So I never ask people how they're doing because everybody's going to tell you fine. I said, how are you coping with being a widow? Because you left your home, you went to school, you got married at 21, you had kids, and you've been married 51 years. And she said, I had to decide to keep busy. I said, how'd you do that? She said, I just did. I needed to be still out with my friends, still out with my charity work, still out with, uh, with being with my kids, still shopping, still all those things. Because she said, my husband wasn't coming back. And it didn't mean that I didn't mourn him or miss him, but she said, I wasn't going to die with him. And she said, I just had to decide. And I talked to other folks who, who, uh, 
are caught in the throes of divorce and child custody and so on and so forth, and they get caught up in the emotional resolve of it, and they say, how do, how do I get him to or get her to, to treat me better, or how do I get out of this, or how do I get through this? And my comment is, you have to decide to not let the small stuff get to you. You have to decide not to hang on every word, and you have to decide that you can only be in control of what you can at the time. You can't control everything. And for a lot of folks, that's a hard thing to do because they're used to there are other people making their decisions for them or they're used to delaying decisions or they're used to saying, oh, it's so hard and it's so awful and I just can't. And that that's what creates anxiety is that spin, I call it the washing spin cycle of your head. Your head wants to make decisions and we rely on our emotions first and the emotions don't want you to make decisions that we need to for, for sanity reasons and for the sake of our own mental health. So for for I can see how that that works or how that would apply to an individual. What about for a credit union or another organization? I know you you mentioned you were brought down after Oklahoma City to help that credit union kind of get back up on its feet and and whatnot. How do you how do you help out a, uh, an organization of more than one person? Uh, one of the things we do, for example, I'll give you a robbery example because that's that's pretty standard within credit unions is after the robbery's over, you get the staff to decide on little things to get their brains rewired and get them out of acute crisis mode into thinking crisis mode. And you get them to make little decisions like, do you want water? And they might say no. And you say, well, it, water's a good thing because it gets rid of all that fear in your system. And, and you just keep gently pushing the water to them and drinking it yourself and pushing the water to them. And after a while, they'll go, I think I need some water. Decision. You might say to them, uh, when we teach police how to interview uh, credit union staff that are, in a, that are in a robbery situation, we say to the police, let them tell you where they want to be interviewed. And, and yes, it has to be alone. And yes, no one else can hear and, and all that sort of thing. But if I can make a decision that I want to be interviewed in the front lobby or at a picnic table and no one's around, my brain's going to think differently, and I'll have some control. Um, we teach we teach staff how to uh, uh, to get things done ahead of time. So, for example, make up a robbery sign for the door and put it in the closet somewhere in case a robbery happens. You don't have to make it up. We we give staff uh, food lists so that you know if they want to buy food for their staff after a robbery, the list is there. They can make that decision to call, and it feels it feels good for them, and it short circuits the brain into into thinking mode. So little tiny decisions. It's like when a, um, it's like in a disaster too. When we we dealt with Oklahoma City and you had staff upset, you had members upset. What are we going to do? Well, we'll never see this person again. And uh, we we had them kind of do a bit of volunteering around Tinker Air Force Base Credit Union a little bit. We said, you know, why don't you make coffee? Why don't you organize some folks? to come and make coffee for the next two days and hand it out to the members. And little things like that that, that gave people that, that purpose. And decision-making is purposeful. And so we were gently, I guess, for lack of a better word, forcing them to make decisions. And it, it gets you, believe it or not, it gets you more stable, and it, and it gets you thinking on a different plane a lot faster. I, I would imagine. So is a lot of crisis management coming in and helping out folks once that crisis has happened? Is there anything they can do beforehand? I mean, in order to kind of plan those what if? 
You bet. That's a great. We do a lot of planning uh, beforehand. Like when we teach folks how to build emergency management plans and emergency management plans for homes uh, so that the kids are all ready to go and they know what to happen. And, and we, we have families uh, do live exercise drills at home, like pretend your house is on fire and how are you going to get out? And same as we do for, for companies. Uh, we, do, we build a lot of exercise scenarios for municipalities and credit unions where it's real, it, it feels real, and we have them go through the scenario. And sometimes it's a tabletop and sometimes we say, okay, you know, can you shut down the credit union for half a day or can you warn your members that we're going to be doing some disaster training exercises and you can stay away if you like, but if you come and it looks a little weird, here's what we're doing. Because if people know ahead of time in a calm situation what to do, they will do it when all hell's breaking loose. But we never train folks in a live fire situation where we're shooting bullets and you know, uh, screaming and yelling at all because they don't learn from that. They learn from systematic, consistent, beforehand training, and it's called autopilot training. And it has been proven over years and years and years to work with civilians. Um, you think about your local fire department, they train once a week. Why? Because they need to be automatic when they show up at your house for a fire. They don't need to go, gee, how do I open a hydrant. They, they need to know it all has to be automatic, and we can teach ourselves how to be automatic beforehand when an emergency hits. Are our organizations pretty um, accepting of that idea that they need to train for these worst-case scenarios or, or crises that could happen? Well, I can certainly tell you that municipalities, uh, towns and cities are very good at training for disasters. Um, I can tell you that a lot of corporations and organizations um, are getting there. Uh, I can tell you that families uh, need to, are getting better. I shouldn't say they need to do anything. They're getting better at it, for sure. Um, teaching their kids and, and taking it more seriously and having things packed. But that's only because in the last four to five years, there's been a lot of work done on family kits and family emergency planning booklets and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I still see, you know, in many instances where folks are told to shelter in place, they don't really understand what that is because they still have to have an escape plan even even when the issue is over or the cloud plume of poisonous gases from a train derailment are done or, or whatever that case is. They still have to be able to look after themselves. And um, we're, we're finding that we need to pick up on that a bit but that, that all comes with time. I will say we're a lot better than we were in 1996. In fact, I would I'll put my reputation on it. We're a lot better prepared now than we were way back in 96. And why do you, why do you specifically say 96? Uh, the Oklahoma bombing, um, that terrorist event, really opened our eyes on, on how to do things. And, and it really changed the way we debrief and we do scenarios and how we communicate with interagencies and allied agencies. Uh, the the uh, September 11th, 9-11 disaster really focused and, and taught us the fact that allied agencies were having trouble communicating with each other. And uh, so every, every big situation, I mean, everything's always debriefed and there's reports and, and so forth and the recommendations. We take those in the industry very seriously and we enact them. I mean, we've had some big ones here in Alberta with blizzards and storms and multiple vehicles. Uh, two years ago, we had almost 200 people, 300 people 
spin out and crash into each other on an icy highway in the winter, and it was minus 30 uh, below. And uh, some were prepared, some weren't, and uh, emergency services from the neighboring municipalities and counties really learned from that one too and, and did a lot of education after that to the traveling public about what do you put in your car and how are you supposed to be traveling in the winter and stop wearing shoes when it's 30 below, those, those kinds of things. So um, we learn. And, but Oklahoma was, for a lot of us, the starting point of, of terrorism. I mean, we, we certainly weren't living in Belfast and Ireland. I mean, they certainly were way better at looking after themselves than, than we were. But Oklahoma, I think, was our North American wake-up point, and uh, we certainly became more sophisticated, which is, uh, I would say those loss of 168 lives did not go in vain. Uh, we, we honored them by practicing more and learning from the lessons, and in their memory, we got better. So it was kind of that moment where people realized this really could happen. It, it's not just something that's happening across the ocean or to somebody else. It could happen to me. Absolutely. We're pretty sheltered here in North America. Nothing much happens. And I know we have Irish friends that are in the, in the fire service here in Laducan. When they were kids, before they played in the street, they looked under cars for bombs in Ireland. And uh, I, none of us could fathom that. I mean, I still can't. I can't imagine going out to play and looking for IRA explosive devices and then still playing in the street if you couldn't find anything. So we're waking up to terrorism here. It's a little, it's a little scary. It's a little, it's a little harder for us to fathom because your country and you know, United States and Canada are so huge. They're so huge and vast in territory. I mean, Canada is the second largest country in the world as far as area. We have more coastline uh, than just about any other country in the world that, that we have to, we have to guard and look after. And, and, you know, anybody can sneak through and do anything. But um, we're slowly waking up more and more, and, and that's okay. There's a difference between waking up and being paranoid, and paranoia serves us no purpose. So for those folks who find themselves in the midst of a crisis, um, I know you talked about deci making decisions is, is huge and, and key part of um, going through that crisis. What are kind of the top three things, if, they, if somebody has to remember three things during a crisis to do or remember, what, what would they... What would you suggest they be? Well, in, in any kind of crisis, first of all, you have to admit it's happening. That's number one. You can't run away from it. And you can't hope it goes away. And you, you can't hope that it gets better soon. You have to admit that there's an issue. You admit that there's a crisis and a problem that needs decision-making. And you hit it head on. You don't run away. You don't go drinking. You don't go for medication and, and hope that it'll lessen. So that's number one. You acknowledge it. And you hit it head on. Second thing you do is, okay, i got to make some plans here. So we've either got to, you know, have our evacuation plan in place if we've got a house fire that's going on or if we're in a flood or if we're in a hurricane, we got to pre-plan a little bit. If it's a personal uh, issue, if you wake up one morning and your spouse says, I don't love you anymore and I'm moving out, um, you have to get over the shock and then make plans. What are we going to do? Are you moving out? Are we over? Can we have counseling? If all that is no, then it's okay. We've, we've got to do this as swiftly and as appropriately as possible. And then the third thing uh, that we have to do is give ourselves the opportunity when it's over to sit back and reflect and what did we learn from it? How can we make changes? Even if it's a personal crisis, how can I make changes for the next time? How can I 
how can I be um, uh, critical, not of, of who I am as a person, but how can I handle this the next time? How can I teach my kids how to handle this stuff? How can they, they see me being upset and then recover? That's good teaching for kids. What skills can I can I provide them if I have a family? What what skills can my spouse and I learn from it? What skills can we as a, an employee group learn from? And and to be critical about it because a lot of times it's not personal. You learn skills from evaluating the situation. So those would be the top three things, and they're really tall orders, and that's what I teach community management school is just how to do those kinds of things. You, you segue right into that, you know, you're talking at Cuter Management School. What did what did you hope that what did you hope that they t- those students took away from what was it a day long presentation from you? Um, it's really important that they they deal with the issues that happen in their credit unions. Everything from HR stuff to criminal like robberies and frauds and or emergency stuff. Uh, some things you know you have members having heart attacks in the main lobby or the foyer. Uh, or foyer, as you guys call it, um, you got you got those kinds of things. You have those kinds of things happen. Uh, it's important that uh, the other thing we taught them is it's, it's important how to talk to people who are in crisis and that what what kinds of things you want to say and what kinds of things you we really don't want you to say, and and to really look at all the kinds of things and problems the staff bring into the workplace that they as managers are going to have to be cognizant of and not run away from either. So credit unions have almost like a triple whammy. They have the criminal element that wants to take advantage of them, whether that be fraud or robbery or terrorism or hostage taking or whatever that is, or just hooking onto the the ATM in the front of the credit union and yanking it out with a truck. That's happened before. And then they have all the HR concerns uh, inside with staff maybe being sick or staff diagnosed with terminal illnesses or staff not working up to performance or a bad manager or a bad supervisor or bullying or all those things that happen inside. And then they have to deal with the outside influences such as regulations and um, outside uh, members maybe in serious trouble that they can't help or they're late on payments or all those kind of external influences that, that can you know, kind of chop up your day a little bit. So they have to be sound of mind, and we talk about that, and we, we I tell them you have to be deliberate in your day, and you have to let go of the things that don't mean anything. We, we get all freaked out about absolutely everything right now, and we're labeling things and calling things names that have never been called that before, and we're just absolutely obsessing. Um, and I said to them in class, I said, everybody's obsessing over the, me- the word pink, basically, the meaning of the word pink. And I said, pink is pink. And sometimes life is clear. We just don't like making it clear because we're always looking for some shadows. So that's, those are the topics that we talked about in about seven hours. Wow. It, it really gives that definition of a crisis can be something different for person A to person B to person C there. It's really individualized. It is, and it depends on your life experience. And a lot of times we drag our life experience around us from a negative perspective. We drag our past around us like a big bag of rocks all the time, and, and we moan and bemoan it instead of looking at the life lessons that taught us, no matter how horrible that past was. And I'll give you maybe just an interesting lighthearted situation. When I was on the 
farm as a kid, you had to look after all sorts of animals, and we had, you know, purebred um, cattle and cattle dogs and cats, and I had roping horses and all that. And I could look after animals, no problem, didn't bother me, you know, from calving them out to helping with the vet to whatever. Yet if my parents or my sisters ended up uh, hurting themselves and I saw blood, I'd pass out. So fast forward now, 30 years later, been off the farm. If I see you hurt and you're bleeding, it doesn't bother me anymore. Yet I make my husband take my cat, our cat to the vet for his mani-pedi sessions because I can't stand going to the vet office because I don't want him to cry. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Crazy how it, how it changes with, like you said, your life experience. Yeah, yeah. It's silly how it just reversed itself. Now I know if my husband was around and something happened to the cat, yeah, we'd be going to the vet and I wouldn't like it, but I'd do it. But right now, yeah, I'm just playing. I'm just playing the princess, and uh, my husband and the cat can go to the vet. So it's just, uh, it's just interesting how you reverse. But the, the key thing is acknowledging it and knowing full well that if you're ever stuck, you could do it. Because we all can do amazing things. We just, we just choose to hide sometimes. And you look at some of the, like you look at Harvey right now. Some of the most uh, precious heroes come out of folks who were n- probably never even considered to help out. And they'll be the most precious heroes of this aftermath of this hurricane. Yeah, there's some great stories already coming out from what's going on down there. And I can I can only imagine that a lot of the stuff that you've talked about today, making a decision, acknowledging, you know, making a plan is, is playing out as we speak down in Texas. I would think so. And uh, some folks will be really good at it and others um, will hopefully learn from this. And, and hopefully, um, and I don't mean learn in a harsh way, but they'll, they'll learn that next time they're in a hurricane belt and we'll take some different precautions. And others are just unsung heroes. I look at that woman this morning down there that, what, she had 75 horses and she rescued 30 of us. They were, 30 of them, they were exhausted. They'd gotten out or gotten flooded and some of them could, they had no more energy to swim anymore. And she rescued them all. I mean, what a hero. Definitely. I, I hadn't heard that story, so. Yeah, I just saw it come across my new feed, uh, news feed this morning, and uh, just awesome. You look at that uh, police officer that had spent 12 hours rescuing people in the water, and a lot of folks say, well, so what? He was, you know, he was pulling people out, you know, and but that water's cold. That exhausts you. And there he was, sound asleep against the desk, on the floor, out cold. I mean, unsung heroes. You look at all the folks from Louisiana and, and uh, Georgia and that bringing their boats like crazy. Uh, so that they can they can rescue and the amount of animals they're trying to rescue because of course all the gators are coming in now and all the you know they've got dead animals on the road and all that like I mean it's just you allow people to do what they do best and show the best of what they've got and the disaster is mitigated more quickly when you hear stories like that does that kind of make you go what I do that's what I'm hoping to teach people how to do and how to react one thousand percent in Canadian dollars Absolutely. Absolutely. Makes my heart sing when I know that people are getting the lesson and they just go out and take a risk and they go at it. And uh, that's all we can expect each other to do. We're, we're really helping uh, folks here in North America. I mean, for the most part in the world, but we'll stick to North America here. We're, we help a lot and we want to help and we're really good to each other. We get caught up in stuff, but um, nobody wants to see anybody suffer and nobody wants to see uh, anybody go out. And I will say this this morning, some of our big lumber mills up here in Canada and Alberta and on the West Coast, which is the next province over in BC, they're 
challenging each other to put rail cars together full of lumber so that people could start to rebuild. And when everything's good to go, we'll be sending down trains of lumber. So, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And also exhibits that whole people helping people philosophy that credit unions kind of are built around. So It is built around and they're proud of it. And we need to tout it more and we need to proclaim it to the heavens that this is why we're involved with credit unions and in credit union people, because that's the core focus of our existence. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.